This is the only portmanteau that I hate. Lobotomobile is unacceptable. Hey, Emily, do you want to join a cult? Yes. Oh, finally. I'm so happy. <laughs> you guys, let's join a cult. Please. Let's just do this. Just like give all of our life responsibilities to someone else. Yeah, that's the I mean, best part. Basically, right? right? These are the things no one's talking about with cults. Is that you could just give over your you have to make zero decisions. Mm -hmm. You don't even probably have to decide what to eat at any given point. Yeah. If you are thinking of giving up on life, I think a cult is the way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And uh, you can quote us on that. <laughs> anyway, this is the uh-oh feeling. <laughs> I'm Taylor. I'm Emily. We're here to tell your survival stories. I am very excited about this episode because you've been talking about it for a month. Yeah, about. <laughs> yeah, she's yeah. really excited about her story. And even though I stumbled upon mine like two days ago, I, I got really emotionally attached to it. So this is going to be an interesting one. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, do we, do we just want to launch in? We should talk about what we're drinking. We're being nice to ourselves. Yes, we are. Because we're doing like a brunch recording session. Yes. So we got mimosas. We are being fancy ladies. We have mimosas and croissant. And croissants covered in crack. I just took the hugest swig of the mimosa because I'm just. I was trying to be dainty because we just, were being ladies today. I'm so thirsty. <laughs> and then you just had to go and ruin it. Look, I'm a thirsty well, listen, ass bitch. Fine. Thank you. She's gulping it for my pleasure. All right, bitches. Which one of us is going first? <laughs> I don't, don't know. We don't remember. Man, I wish we had, like, a Steven who would just tell us this shit. That'd be really nice. Getting, getting pretty tired of not being rich and famous over this podcast and having people who can help us a whole bunch. Hold on, I got the, um, I've got our most recent episode pulled up. Uh, I believe you are first because I, yeah, last time I discussed Leandra Ram, and uh, yeah. you did Nikki Gozer and that was yeah. second. Yeah, that was so. second because then we got on our soapbox. Shit, that's right. We just yelled a whole bunch. Yep. Yeah, thanks for sticking with us on that one. <laughs> Hope you appreciated that little bit of a soapbox that we did there at the Oof. end. Oof. Look, we try not to be preachy, but, but sometimes like, we sometimes get Sometimes you gotta be preachy. Yeah, sometimes, you, sometimes, sometimes the shit warrants it and also we had... So many shots of tequila that night. Oh, yeah. my God. Oh, my God. We, like, took out a solid chunk of that bottle. Yes. Like, and then we went and drank margaritas. Yeah, because we're fucking Because we're really good idiots. at this. We're, we're, we're either super very, good at this. We're either very good or very bad at it. And uh, the jury's then, still out on that one. And then we watched Jimmy Buffett. Fuck <laughs> <Okay>. yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? That's what I happens when you go to Rhett's house. Yeah. Sometimes Jimmy Buffett is just on, and you just have to live that island life. Yeah. Drinking margaritas. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty rad, actually. Yeah. I want to be a parrot head now. I know. I just want to be on a beach. Always. Right now. 100% of the time. Let's go. The podcast yes. is canceled. Let's I go. I want sand in my butt crack right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Can we not take some of the shittiest aspects? No pun intended on that. <laughs> I just. <laughs> oh, good. All right. Okay. All right. Oh. I like that you're going first because then I don't have to wait any longer for this fucking story. <laughs> so the first step 
and having a proper conversation about mental health, let's talk about some shit that's already gone wrong. So we can re-highlight some things in the past that we maybe shouldn't do again. Sure. Love it. Like, I don't know, the treatment of PTSD victims in World War II, our vets. Yeah. That's what we're going to talk about Oh, shit. Was it called Shell Shock still? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We had no idea what that was for a long time. And the uh, most common treatment for it was lobotomies. Oh, no. So let's talk about no. lobotomies. No, Emily, no. I don't want to talk. <laughs> I hate this. <laughs> you can blame Steve. And to think I was so excited. I know. I oh, lured God. you into a trap. If anybody doesn't know what a lobotomy is, your oh, life is about to yeah. get ruined. Your life's about to get wrecked. Absolutely smashed. So the Portuguese neurologist, just like a little history of lobotomies, because like I'm sure there's like someone out there who has no idea what a lobotomy is. Sure. There's got to be. I guess. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I can't picture that, but... If it's you, this is for you. If it's you, this you. is for you. Yeah. Uh, the Portuguese neurologist Igas Moniz believed that patients with obsessive behavior were suffering from fixed circuits in the brain. So in 1935, he decided to sever the connecting fibers of the neurons. So he basically severed the frontal cortex of your brain and was like, yeah. That sounds good. Yeah, that seems right and fine. And why do we even have a brain that's connected like that in the first place? No, just yeah, seems to be causing problems. Obviously a mistake. Yeah, I will just cut it. So he took two. He drilled two holes in, and then they inserted a tool, did a little jiggle, jiggle, severed things, called it good. Gotta love a little jiggle, jiggle. Sounds yeah. very precise. Oh, yeah. It's just so precise. Yeah. And it only gets more precise as we keep going here. Really? Really? Oh, absolutely. I think you're lying. I think I'm going to keep going with my notes. Emily has the dead eyes of a liar right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Moniz was like, hey, this worked on the 20 people I've done in a hospital in a controlled setting with professional staff around me. And then the American neurologist, Walter Freeman was like, I could do that. Of course, he's American. And, like, he he did it. Holy shit, did he do it? Did he? A whole bunch of times. (laughs) Oh, no. So, from the early 1940s, I'm going to come back to Walter Freeman. Sure. He's, okay. He's a whole thing. Oh, God. So, from the early 1940s, it, it was seen as, like, this miracle cure in the UK and in the U.S., So everyone was doing it. So am I to understand that it worked for at least some people? At least 30%-ish. I mean, And worked is like a strong word. Sure. They're different now, and different is better than what they were. Yeah. (laughs) It was used to treat a range of illnesses from schizophrenia to depression to compulsive disorders. Sure. And the reason for its popularity was simple. The alternative was worse. Sure. I mean, if you have a debilitating thing that's like keeping you from living any part of your life, like mm-hmm. you're in a room all day shaking because you can't. Yeah. And they didn't have antipsychotic drugs they have now. They didn't have any of that yet. Right. So like maybe even if you are fundamentally different after this, mm-hmm. like if you can do anything, whereas before you could do nothing. Like yeah. They, maybe... were, they were hoping that through lobotomy, 
some of the people that were looking at a future living in an institution could be sent home instead. Sure. So the UK set up centers for lobotomies. Like they had specific places to go get it done. That seems like a fair thing. You're touching a brain. You're poking a brain. I don't want that done just anywhere. Uh, Okay. Emily. 1949, Igaz Moniz won the Nobel Prize for inventing the lobotomy. Like, he won a fucking Nobel Prize. Oh, my God. But then, (laughs) by the mid-1950s, it suddenly really fell out of favor. Because they were seeing long-term effects and actually following up with patients who'd had lobotomies. And being like, oh, you're nothing now. Also, they really started focusing on Walter Freeman's work. Okay. So let's talk about Walter Freeman. Let's talk about him. Am I going to hate him? Oh, so much. He's th- there is a documentary on him, like interviewing like one of his children. Do you know what it's called? Because I'm going to watch it. Uh, the Lobotomy. It's a 2008 documentary called The Lobotomy. Okay. And there's a picture of a woman with like black eyes. Because that was a very common thing that happened. Wait, your eyes go black? Oh, okay. So, okay. listen, there's <laughs> there's a couple different ways you can do a lobotomy. You can okay. do the, like, two holes up here, or you can go through the orbital bone. Stick so, it around your yep, eye. Yep, you stick it above the eye mm-hmm. and just kind of go in until you hit, and then you take, and that's with an ice pick, which is what most people think of when they think of lobotomies. Ice pick lobotomy, yeah. Yep, you just take an ice pick, and you go up and in, and then you just hit it with a mallet, Episode and then of you Hannibal. jiggle. Episode of Hannibal. Uh-huh. That one uh-huh. lady did that. Uh-huh. Ugh. Yeah, and you just jiggle it, and you sever basically the two halves of the brain. Gross. Yeah. I yeah. hate that they're just like, I must be doing exactly what I mean to. I must be severing the two halves of the brain because I am jiggling it. Yeah. You um, know, I'm just assuming I'm getting it in the right spot. I might be making brain soup, but I don't know. Yeah. So wait, Considering so- even to this day, right now, there are still so many parts of the brain that we don't understand Like, the brain, as far as I know, still hasn't been fully mapped out. It's, like, the most complicated part of our very complicated bodies. There's a reason people are awake during brain surgery. Yeah, yeah. They have to be constantly testing you to make sure they're not fucking up something we don't even understand. Yeah. (laughs) So, Walter Freeman basically took the idea of the lobotomy and wanted to do it on, like, a mass production scale. No. So he believed what he was doing was relieving thousands from what he called the burden of consciousness. Wow. He had a lobotomobile. Nope. Emily, leave my house. That's unacceptable information. (laughs) No. I didn't come up with that. Lobotomobile. Uh Uh-huh. Great. He traveled around the country with his ice pick and hammer and performed lobotomies on whoever needed it. In his lobotomobile. Tell me that that is a term that you came up with. Lobotomobile. No. Nope. 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 It's like that's what he called this it. This man painted lobotomobile on the side of a van. <laughs> and drove around the country. With an ice pick and a hammer. With an ice pick and a hammer. And, was like, and he you, wasn't arrested. Would you like release from consciousness? Eh? 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 Come in my lobotomobile. All right. Not Ted Bundy. <laughs> like, yeah. Here's the thing. He performed lobotomies on literally anyone who needed it, including a lot of children. Who needed it? Yeah. What the fuck was the determination there? If he uh, thought it was like a mass production type of yeah, thing. Yeah, so 
there's one of the survivors. I'm only going to really talk about one that started me down this whole path. Sure. <clears throat> but Howard Dully was one of the children that Dr. Freeman lobotomized oh because he was acting out because he didn't like his stepmother and she was just really cruel to him. And he was so he a was, kid. He was being a kid. And she had him lobotomized. Oh, my God. That's a criminal crime. Yep. Uh, Dr. Walter Freeman also was the one who performed the lobotomy on Rosemary Kennedy. Oh, wait. Seriously? Yep. That's so fucked up. Yep. Uh, just some information about Rosemary, because I'm not going to get into the whole Kennedy. That's its own. That is really like, its, its own, own thing. series. We could do... An we episode on different Kennedys. Like we could do probably a three-part episode yeah. on the Kennedys because they all have tragic fucking stories. They were um they were a really cursed. weird and yeah, messed up, yeah, mentally, physically cursed family for sure. But also, you know, one of the most famous families in America yeah. for generations. Like yeah. such a weird it's like they sold one of their ancestors sold their soul to a demon mm -hmm. and be like, all of your ancestors will now be powerful. But but also, also, you're fucked. They'll suffer <laughs> and die a lot. Yeah, you'll work in, in politics for generations and become this huge icon. And so, so many of them will die horribly. Just like so many. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. So here's a quote from an article about Rosemary Kennedy that kind of gives you a peek. For sure. And just her whole story is really sad. And I, I firmly recommend checking out everything because she was doomed from birth Aww. like she was doomed from birth poor sweet mom so throughout the entire procedure rosemary was awake speaking with doctors and reciting poems to nurses they knew the procedure was over when she stopped speaking that's a stupid way to yep. do that <laughs> immediately after the procedure the kennedys realized that something was wrong what do you mean something was wrong rosemary <laughs> This yeah. is what happens to people who get lobotomies. Like, uh -huh. how is that? They're like, that's exactly well, what like, usually some happens. Some people after lobotomies, especially the ice pick lobotomies, they were fine. They're just like, you're going to wear dark sunglasses because you're going to have some black eyes. You're but just they would look... get up and walk away from the table. Like, they weren't sedated for lobotomies. I mean, I suppose you don't really feel that necessarily. Oh, no, or... we're going to get into that. Oh, no. Okay, so. <clears throat> okay, I, um, I'm pouring more uh, yeah. champagne. All right. Rosemary could no longer speak or walk. She was moved to an institution and spent months, months, monks, what? <laughs> and spent months in physical therapy before she regained movement. Even And even then, it was only partially in one arm. Whoa. The fact that she regained anything is kind of crazy. Rosemary Kennedy spent 20 years in this institution, unable to speak, walk, or see her family. <sighs> it wasn't until after Joe, her father, suffered a massive stroke that Rose, mother... Went to go see her. And in a panicked rage, Rosemary attacked her mother because she didn't know what else to do. Oh. And at that point, the Kennedys realized what they had done and began to champion the rights for the mentally disabled. Wow. Wow. Poor Rosemary. Yep. So typically, Dr. Freeman used electroshock therapy to induce a seizure before then going in with his ice pick. Why? What the fuck does that do? It knocks you out for a couple minutes. There's a lot of ways to do that. Holy shit. Yeah. Let me hurt you so I can hurt you. 
Um, a lot of people did die because he performed about 3,500 lobotomies. Jesus. That's too many of those. That's so many. That's way, way With too many really, of those. really, really low success rate. Oh, my God. Yeah. How is this legal? Yeah. And I, like, found an article that's like, this man literally killed people and ruined people's lives and no charges were ever pressed against him. Wait, <laughs> he never went to jail or anything? No. I'm going to die. What I mean, year he was did this get again? to see, this was in the 1940s to 50s. Ugh. And he died in the 70s. So he did get to see the downfall of the lobotomy and people villainizing him in the medical field. Okay. Because, I mean, he was a pioneer of a lot mm-hmm. and considered a major contribution to the psychiatric field. But also, like, but also a lot of people, people were like, hey, what you did? Not cool. Yeah, good. I mean, if that's all you're going to get, that's unfortunate. But, like, at least he wasn't... He could walk into a room and have people give him a dirty look is mm-hmm. what he got, basically. Yeah. This is garbage. Please go on. All right. <laughs> Tell me more of the trash. So that's the broad spectrum. Mm-hmm. Now let's narrow it back down to our World War II vets. Oh, yeah. The U.S. government lobotomized roughly 2,000 World War II vets. What? According to unearthed records in a Wall Street Journal investigation, which, FYI, before the Wall Street Journal did some digging into some archives and, like, dug up a box with just records, Mm -hmm. the VA denied having any knowledge of of a lobotomy program. Of course they fucking did. Mm -hmm. That's not something you want to admit to. Yeah. Like, look, this is why the press... We didn't lobotomize the vets. No, we would never. We've never made a mistake. We're America. We've never heard a veteran even once. Sorry. Also, this is why the press is important. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Absolutely. Wall Street Journal. Fucking Yeah. We would not know still. <clears throat> like Yeah, no, they like swept it under the rug. Cause they were lobotomizing people until the mid fifties. Holy shit. Including Holy shit. in Toma. What? Where we have a VA. Okay, for anybody who doesn't know, Toma is a city about 45 minutes east of us. That has a lot of controversy about their their VA, VA hospital. System. It's not good. <laughs> yeah, it really came under attack like a couple years ago now for yeah. having incredibly long wait times. Yep. And for one doctor in particular over prescribing opioids to a lot of veterans. And they were very addicted and yep. somebody died. Yep. And it was a whole problem. Um, that VA has gone through a lot of different so, changes. So many. And it's still not where it needs to be. No, but it is a lot better. It's better. Their wait times are a lot better, um, too. Because I have some friends that are veterans. I also worked a lot with vets before the VA went through this whole process. Right. And I still work with vets occasionally. Um, and it's just hearing them talk about the VA. It's just... They're it's, like, yeah, I could get this done at the VA, but like, also, you're going to get it done faster and it's going to be better. Yeah. And I know I'll actually get the follow-up care that I need. Right. Yeah. That's the unfortunate... Because, like, I get it. The VA doesn't... It's it's understaffed. They don't have enough people anywhere to yeah. do anything. But, like, w- this is the place they're told... The veterans are told they can go to for the rest of their lives yeah. when they come back for more and it fucks them over regularly and it's really shitty. Yeah. So the VA thought that they were prepared for World War Two. They're like, we've been through this before with World War One. Sure. Everything's totally fine. 
We are going to acknowledge the amount of shell shock that came out of World War One of fighting in the trenches. We are ready for World War II. We've, we've got this system we worked out. got this. When they come back, we got them. They did mental analyses of the recruits. And, like, when they were drafting, you had to go through a whole physical and mental thing. Makes sense. And more than a million potential sh- soldiers were told they couldn't serve. Here's the thing they didn't plan for. Mm-hmm. War. <laughs> so, after the war, unsurprisingly, the VA was swamped with psychiatric cases. Uh, what? There that doesn't were... make any sense to me, Emily. Yeah, I know. I know. It's, it's crazy, but go with me on this. Okay, okay. I'm with you. So, there were a lot of cases which would now be flagged as PTSD of sure. varying levels. Sure. But they were also getting some severe diagnoses of schizophrenia and psychosis. Oh. In their veterans coming back from war, which also makes sense. Sure, Especially yeah. Especially if anyone was, like, in the group liberating the concentration camps and seeing all of that and just the inhumanity. That's like PTSD tipping over into something much worse. Yeah. Because they just like the soldiers coming home couldn't handle what they'd gone through. Mm -hmm. Uh, They tried the electroconvulsive therapy in an attempt to reset some systems. It's like trying to turn a human off and on again. Yep. And I just don't know if it's ever worked. No. <laughs> Although it is coming back. Great. It must, it must be good for something. I my don't God. know what, but been okay. Doing it forever. Sure. Yeah. Uh, they also did insulin shock therapy. Where they basically put people in an insulin coma. Okay. What? And then bring them out. Uh, one of the documentaries I watched it, that has been done to a woman more than 100 times. Which is not good. Whoa. Not good. That'll fuck up your whole brain. Yeah. And probably a lot of your other shit. A lot more. You put them to sleep and when they wake up, they're supposed to be okay. Except for the thing that it causes hypoglycemia. No shit, huh? Because suddenly you have very low glucose levels when you come out of an insulin coma. Yeah. And it made people restless, sweaty, liable to further convulsions and, quote, aftershocks, a.k.a. they were having seizures. <laughs> aftershocks. That's the nicest way to think about that. And then if they kept doing it to people, somehow they became obese. Weird. Are you kidding Weird me? Weird how that works. You're messing also, with people's insulin levels? Yeah. Also, it caused severe brain damage if they kept going through it. You can't be in a coma a lot. It'll fuck up your shit. And eventually, death. In some extreme cases. Some, yeah. They They, sound very extreme. Yeah, yeah. They also had hydrotherapy. Did they drown people Uh, for two minutes at a time? What? Close. This is disgusting. Yeah, they uh, sprayed patients with high-pressure hoses of hot and cold water to see if that somehow made them better. We were just... Throwing everything at the wall, weren't we? My God. Uh, Yeah. Psychiatry, quote, didn't really have anything to do to make these guys better. And there was a lot of sense of desperation. So they're just, they really literally literally are. just throwing shit at the wall and seeing if it sticks. And it honestly does sound like they are just trying to reset people. They are not making them work through it. They don't know how. Nope. They're just like, hey, we need to make you better. Yeah. We're like, let's just, if we can stop you 
from doing it, like thinking for a while mm-hmm. and then turn you back on, maybe It'll be great. you'll be fine. Yeah. That is the most batshit way of thinking about this. Yeah. From this, like from our perspective now, it's mm-hmm. crazy. I'm sure they just literally had no idea what they were doing. It's like no. they're trying their and best with shit. We're suffering a lot of burnout. Mm-hmm. The stories of abuse of the mentally ill coming out of the 40s and 50s in mental hospitals, which heavily contributed to a lot of them being shut down. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it's awful. Like there were some interviews with nurses and psychologists who were working in the hospitals going, this was disgusting. It yeah. was absolutely disgusting. The things they watched some of the nursing staff and do- provider staff do to patients. Like, I mean, yeah, they were probably, you know, understaffed over full of people. And then like, it just becomes totally normal for the staff to treat. Yeah people this way and you have someone who goes through a lobotomy who suddenly is basically a a child Mm -hmm. who there's nothing they can do to fix it and they just abuse them they have no patience for that absolutely no patience yeah i mean it was just rampant so then you add on top of that doing these procedures of these lobotomies and electroshock therapy and Mm -hmm. putting people into insulin comas and expecting it to work out because they obviously have great aftercare like yeah yeah oh yeah okay sure that (laughs) brings us to roman tritz say that one more time roman tritz our Mm. survivor okay hello roman um he described himself as mentally injured and not mentally ill okay sure and underwent a lobotomy on july 1st 1953 he was a world war ii vet who was the son of a wisconsin dairy farmer oh and he flew a B-17 Flying Fortress on 34 combat missions over Germany and Nazi-occupied Europe. Wow, that's a lot of missions. Yeah. And he did live in La Crosse, Wisconsin until he passed away. Oh my God, for real? Holy shit. He used shit. to go to eat at the King Street Kitchen two times a day. <sighs> oh, buddy, uh, there's better food out there for you, he but really it's really liked their breakfast. Okay, that's fair. He got the same thing every day, apparently. Oh my and he God. sat in the same booth. Oh. And he was there at 1030 on the dot. Holy shit. Uh huh. Wow, this is really close to home. Yeah, it's literally on King Street. And he was lobotomized. <laughs> Holy shit! At the Toma VA. Oh my god. Yep. Oh my god. Okay. Yep. Okay. So he was lobotomized, and we'll get into that because he does remember it happening. Mm-hmm. Shut the fuck up. Like his memories and everything was kind of jumbled. Mm. The obviously lobotomy didn't help him. Mm-hmm. sure but he was around like he he lived and like had a normal life-ish yeah he passed away somewhere between 2011 2014 i couldn't find an obituary for him but he like yeah he's one of the lucky ones it didn't fuck up his entire he still had his most of his motor skills he was able to walk take care of himself he lived alone like wow yeah that's that's crazy Mm mm-hmm so he was given a clean bill of health after everything. He came home from war and they're like, you're okay. And they send him home with his family. If I mean, I imagine if you're not bleeding or screaming when you come in there, yeah. they're like, you're fine. You're fine. Okay, bye. Yeah, we got a lot of other people to take care of. Bye. And then suddenly he started developing some psychiatric symptoms that scared his family. He was hallucinating. And delusional, he was sensing a bunch of cons- conspiracies against him. Oh, poor guy. Um, his family became concerned that he might attack his younger sister. Like, he was fucking paranoid. Sure. 
Well, he's used to being afraid yeah. all the time. Yeah. Like, yeah. there's no way to stop that just cold. Yeah. So eventually they had him committed to the VA hospital in Toma, where he went through years of the electroshock Ugh. and the insulin coma therapy. Oh my God, that too? Mm-hmm. Holy shit, poor That's guy. The reason I talked about that. Wow. <laughs> Everything I just said was a setup to all of the stuff he went through at the Toma Holy VA. Holy shit, Toma. <laughs> and in 1953, eight years after the war ended, the doctors finally were like, hey, you need a lobotomy. We're going to do a lobotomy. They believed that, again, it was like relief from their inner demons. Just like, it's just going to make you just so quiet and okay. And it's, you know. That's the dumbest shit I've ever heard in my entire life. Yeah. Yeah. Like, my God. Yeah. It wasn't even that. This is something that I would imagine they did in like 13th century, like, bullshit back rooms. Them. They yeah. would just kill them. Well, they were doing leeches back then. I but mean, even, even sucking people's blood out slowly is yeah. less stupid than poking them in the brain. Yeah. Honestly. I would rather have a leech trying to clear one of my humors than yeah. I would, yeah. fucking ice pick up above my eye. I would rather somebody tell me I have too much black bile yeah. and try to fix like, me that okay. way. Okay, <laughs> sure. Then be like, uh, so this is an ice pick. Yes, it is exactly what I say. it around your brain. Just gonna do a quick soupy mess up in there. Totally fine. <laughs> and you're, you're good gonna to be go. Great. And it's like the shitty thing is he was lobotomized in 1953, and in 1955, some of the antipsychotic drugs finally came out. Thorazine was released. So he was he was like two years on short. the cusp of yeah. that. Uh, Roman does talk about the fight that he put up. When the orderlies came in to take him to the lobotomy. Oh, God. By then, it must have been known that, like, that's a fucked up procedure, even yeah. if it is supposed yeah, to be helpful. Yeah, because he was towards the end of it. Yeah. Um, a quote from Roman. They got the notion that they were going to come give me a lobotomy to hell with them. Oh, shit. <laughs> Damn, Roman, what's yeah. up? Like, the orderlies pinned him to the floor, and he fought so hard that they eventually gave up. Whoa. But they did come back again a few days before his, or a few weeks before his 30th birthday. And they did give him the lobotomy. Damn. He was discharged from the VA hospital in Toma on March 30th of 1957. um, And sent to live with his family in Portage, Wisconsin. Mm. Okay. A year later, his mother, Anna, died. He stayed on the farm with his father, but his father was getting nervous because Roman was still hearing voices. Okay. And he was still having a lot of thoughts about conspiracy, though now it was turned towards the government. Great. I I mean, mean, that's not wrong. A lot of people go there. Why not? Also, I love how it didn't fix his fucking problem. Nope. (laughs) It just made it worse. Good God. So after his father came down with tuberculosis, the VA then put him in the care of other farm families around the area. But throughout... His moving from farm to farm, he was still experiencing... He started experiencing seizures and ended up having to go back to the VA for more treatments. Oh, no. He did soon move to lacrosse, though. He studied at a technical school. Hmm. And he did manage to hold down some mechanic and machinist jobs before settling into his life of going to the King Street Kitchen every sure. day. Sure. <laughs> and he lived in a little, like, one-room apartment... Like those ones that they have where it just kind of looks like a hotel. Mm -hmm. He had one of those. 
Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And they like the interview. Everyone was like, oh, he's, you know, super mild mannered. Very quiet. Interesting. I wonder if just like his conspiracy stuff sort of just settled down after as he got older. Like and... he still brought it up sure. every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Like in the interviews, like all the interviews I read with him or watched with him, he would bring up the conspiracy that the government was out to get him. But there are also people who right. didn't have a lobotomy who think who that still shit. think that. Yeah. I can name a few. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, it's just. The 40s and 50s just it sucked to be. Anyone who needed any kind of help. How horrible. First of all, that man flew a plane like in like 34 missions. Like he was a smart guy. Mm -hmm. He did a shitload with his young life. Yeah. And then like he was so fucked up and and they couldn't help him. Yeah. And they made him into a person who could. I mean, he obviously overcame a lot and like held down some jobs and Mm -hmm. studied and that's cool. But like he could have. He clearly had a lot of knowledge already. He clearly had a lot of skills he could have utilized to make yeah. a really nice life all, for himself. It was all gone. All gone. Because like they they said he still had like a lot of his motor and function skills, but his memories were just oh god jumbled. Yeah. Absolutely bet. jumbled. He could yeah. remember like some people and certain events. Like he was describing one of his engagements when he was flying and like seeing a B like seventeen next to him and like all of this kind of stuff, but anything beyond that, no. I'm sure things just they probably don't even make any linear sense half the time. Like yeah. I can't imagine living living and like not that. knowing when your memories come from and like how soon they were, yeah, how far back. Like that's oh so sad. Lobotomies. Lobotomies. Stop doing them. And they're starting to look at, like, the backlash that lobotomies had. Mm-hmm. And they're looking at things like chemotherapy right now. Really? As something that in, like, 10 or so years is going to have a lot of backlash like lobotomies did. Because it's terrible. It's it terrible. kills you as it saves you. Yeah. You're killing your body to yeah. try to kill a certain cluster of cells. It is the worst or thing we do. it can do what it did to my mom and give her leukemia on top of having cancer. Oh and now God. they can't fight one without feeding the other. Right. And it just turned into this whole thing. It's the worst. Because you're literally injecting poison into the body and radiation. Right. And, uh, yeah. This so. is going to look barbaric in a, a couple yes. of decades, I'm yep. sure. Oh, absolutely. we just don't know what else to do. Yeah. This was the only way we had. Yep. So, yeah. yeah, no, that's completely fair. Medicine's weird. Medicine's super weird. And, you know, I commend a lot of people even, you know, even if their shit sounds crazy now, they were doing the only things they knew how to do and like trying to fix people. Yeah. But it is so misguided in some ways. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Roman fought them physically and they still gave it to him, like obviously he had no agency. They took yeah. away his rights. Well, also when... Rosemary Kennedy was lobotomized. They didn't tell her. They didn't ask her if she wanted this. They just did it. Yeah, like medical consent is nothing, especially if you have some sort of mental disability. Like they can just take that away from you because somebody else is looking out for you and you don't know. You have been ruled incapable of making your own medical decisions. And in some cases that might be good because you need like a caregiver who's going to look out for you and make those decisions. Mm -hmm. But also you can't just poke a dude's brain (laughs) when he so clearly doesn't want you to. Just because he's delusional sometimes. Yep. Like, that's insane. He went to war. Like, yeah. of course he's delusional. And this is how he treated him coming yeah. home. Yeah. Awful. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Well, thank you for that horrible bullshit. Thanks. Ooh. Oh, my God. My life is worse. Harp noise. Harp noise. <laughs> I'm going to take my dog. <laughs> Hold on. I'm going to take my dog out. We're going to get more stuff. Now make your noise. 
And we're back. Yeah. Yeah. Emily has a croissant. <laughs> She's eating it right now. <laughs> it's very good. We have yet more mimosa. Woo! I think I've mostly recovered from your story. <laughs> I mean, on the surface. <laughs> it lingers with you. Yeah, it do. God, I hate that shit. Mm. But I'm going to do my best to do justice to this story. That involves the sea, apparently. Yes, uh, we love our sea stories on here. <laughs> We've told quite a few now, but there's just so many interesting ones. <laughs> and this one, I think, is interesting because it has, at least the way the story was told, when I watched this documentary, the documentary is called Deep Water. It's a 2006 documentary. Ooh. And it is, yeah, it is less about the actual dealing with the sea and having bad things like happen and having to deal with the like physical ramifications and more to do with like what happens to you mentally when you are out on the water for a very long time. So the person we're going to talk about today is named Donald Crowhurst. There are a few key players in the story um, that are talked about in this documentary, but the documentary really follows him, follows Donald some of the other names I'm going to mention are... Valius P. Hermington. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, some of these people... One of them is named Nigel Tetley, so... Oh, my God. Pretty good name. <laughs> pretty good name, bud. Um, there's also a man named Bernard Montessier. He's a, obviously a Frenchman. Whoa. Um, and then Robin Knox Johnson. <laughs> um, yeah. All very good. Now, I do want to give everyone a disclaimer, because this is a survival podcast, and we have always told stories about people who get through the story. Um, so, disclaimer, this man survives a lot of things. He does not make it through this alive. Whoa! Yeah, so I just, I didn't want to, like, shock people with that, because you might be listening to this for... For a happy ending, sometimes, you know? But, like, or at least, or at least happy enough that, like they make it through and we can tell what their lives were afterwards. Like, like your guy, like Roman, but that's look, I'm still telling this story for a reason. It will become clear, but this man does not make it out of this alive. Just so you are aware. So a little bit of background. Wow. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's for you and all our listeners to just a deal lot with. to process. Uh -huh. So, all right. So it's 1968. The Sunday times golden globe race was a nonstop solo race around the world by yacht. Okay. So it began in England where sailors would have to set out by themselves with nothing but their boats and their know-how and circumnavigate the globe. That's stupid. They were not allowed to stop. There had been other races in the past where you would stop and you could make repairs. This was this not one of This just seems like a setup for absolute disaster. Right. Like if you stopped for more than like a couple of days, like getting supplies and some, some of them are stopped doing interviews and that sort of thing. But like, you could not sit and get repairs to your boat. You had to stay on the boat. So, uh, the rules were that racers could begin at any point between June 1st and October 31st of 1968. When you started within there did not matter. Um, there was sort of a surprise or a prize, like a distinction for the first man to get back because you were the first man ever to do the thing. But the main prize was for the fastest time. And the prize was 5,000 pounds. And in 1968, not a small sum. Yeah. 
but there also were, yeah <laughs> i mean it's also a shitload of work and money put into it for that but mostly again it's it's the distinction it's the yeah. being able that to say notoriety i did this faster than anyone has ever done this so there were nine men in total selected they were all men of course yeah Selected for... Stupid enough to do this. Uh, for real, for real, for real. Like, uh, <laughs> uh-huh. Um, nine men were selected to participate in the race, but only a few of the names, the ones I have mentioned, are important to our story. Bedard Matissier, Nigel Knox Robin, uh, Johnson, um, Robin Knox Johnson, Nigel Tetley, and, <laughs> thank you, and Donald Crowhurst. Every one of these men was an avid, lifelong sailor. They had taken long trips like this. They were well-known in the world of sailing for being the type of people who would pull off this incredible feat. Everyone but Don Crowhurst. Uh When he came on the scene, he was known in the press as like the English dark horse in this race. Nobody knew him. He was a weekend sailor. He Uh knew how to sail, and he'd been on boats a lot, but like he did not do long-term trips. That was not his thing. No one knew who he was and he was just this homegrown hero from the small town in in england and everybody decided sort of you know his anonymity and his chutzpah sort of made him the guy to watch so he was all over the the press as soon as it was announced that he was doing this because everyone was like who the hell is this so before the race don was a businessman he invented something called the navigator which allowed sailors to get their bearings uh, by, like, marine radio beacons. Because before, you would, like, use maps and the stars and shit. There was no GPS. Um, so he had a wife and four children. And his business was by no means booming, but his invention kept food on their table. By all accounts, Don was, like, a remarkably confident man. He just, he really believed that he was destined for something great, that he had the abilities and the smarts to do anything he wanted. And uh, he really wanted to provide a good future for his family. And what he was doing right now was really only getting them by. It wasn't enough. So Don obviously couldn't afford his own boat. Mm -hmm. uh, But he wanted to do this thing so bad. So he enlisted the help of a sponsor named Stanley Best. And Stanley asked Don to sign a contract. Best would buy the boat and pay for the preparations he wouldn't even buy the boat. They built the boat. So, like, he bought it and paid for it to be built and all the stuff surrounding Don getting into the race, he paid for. But the catch was if Don dropped out of the race, either before casting off, because that happened, or early on in the race itself, Don would have to pay best the price of the boat, which would have left Don completely destitute, would have completely financially ruined his family. So, so he couldn't drop out. Yes. That's just, yes. Ah. Almost immediately Don has an absolute shitload riding on this, like his entire life riding on this. Um, and everyone is watching him. His, no pressure. Yeah. No pressure, my dude. Uh, preparations go real bad. <laughs> Shocker. It's not good. Um, racers, other racers begin taking off in the summer of 1968 while for months Don was stuck working on his boat. Too many cooks in the kitchen. A lot of the time, people, you know, things, parts not coming in early enough. People trying to put things together. Shoddy work. A lot of issues. Um, Don had the idea that a a trimaran would be the fastest and most stable type of boat. I have a picture of one. It's like every yacht has the the main hull, but a Mm -hmm. trimaran also has two 
hull-like floats off oh, the yeah. side. Yeah, so Helps with like balance. That. Yes. So yeah. it, it's a well-balanced looking thing, and they are fast. So he was right in that. Um, so his was 40 feet long, and he named it the Tinmouth Electron. Tinmouth, probably, because that is the actual uh, town where he is from. Mm. Tinmouth. So, all sorts of problems. Uh, he, Crowhurst kept working on this boat long through the fall of 1968, when most of the racers already set out. And on the very last day possible, October 31st, he launched. And the reason why you couldn't set out after that was because you couldn't head into the South Atlantic in the winter because you would die. We learned about this. Yeah. Like the ice just closes in around you and you get stuck. So these are small ships. They're not going that far south, but they are going south. There's and still ice. <laughs> there's a lot of problems. Yeah. So you cannot, you could not go past that date. And it's so fucking funny. This was the funniest part to me. So Don sets out on the race around the world. And then as he's leaving the harbor, his sails won't go up and he has to be towed back in. <laughs> there are people watching. There is press. Like, people are taking video and pictures, and they watch him get towed back in. There is, like, a dude on the television announcing it, being like, oh, this is kind of a tragedy. <laughs> like, he is so, he doesn't know what to say. Like, they were so excited, and then this is so disappointing. So he's to be towed back in. They fix the sails, and he actually sets out. Oh, my God. Jesus. Like, it's so bad. That's it's so like, bad. if anything else wasn't red flag number one. Yes, for like, real. It's bad. Also, like, he, you know, there's, like, a, a sailing um, superstition that when you break a champagne bottle on the side of the boat and it doesn't break, that's bad. Yeah. And it didn't break. You, There's video of them having to literally hit the thing, like, five times before that ship breaks. It's a lot. So, let's talk about the route they had to take real quick. So, try to picture this with me. I have a picture here for Emily. I'll try to post this. Um... So the route they were going to take goes like this. They leave from England and they sail south down the Atlantic Ocean until they reach okay. um, an area that's called the Roaring Forties. Uh, okay. Um, and they're sort of skimming the top of it, but the Roaring Forties is a circle of constant storms that circumnavigates the globe at all times. It's a bad area of mm -hmm. the Atlantic. Um, but it's, is that over closer to like South America? Um, they, part of the trip does have to go to South America, but they stick more toward the Africa side at first because okay. they're going to swing down below South Africa, keep going South they're, They swing below, um, Australia. Then they're headed through the Pacific, mm -hmm. South of the Pacific. Then they swing around what they call the horn, which is South America. That little tip of I South know, America. I know like that part is nasty. That's really waters. nasty. Cause that's, that's, um, South Georgia, that's yeah. the island that that boat took off of when they were trying to get to Antarctica that was real yeah. bad. So they have to swing around the Horn there and then back up north through the Atlantic and back to England. That's the route. You are very far south most of the time, but it's also the only like area where there's no huge land masses in the way. It's the only way you can really go. I mean, so, or you could just put legs on your boat. Yeah, right. Or you could just take a duck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then you just drive where you can't boat. Right. <laughs> you know. So that's the route. I hope everyone can picture that. Again, I will try to post it. 
So by the, da- the time Don took off, the Frenchman, Bernard Matissier, had been on the ocean for two months and he was kicking ass. He was a sailor's sailor. He was absolutely made for this. Um, he's sailor, sailing faster than anyone, even though he was not the first to take off. Don, meanwhile, like the other sailors, recorded much of his journey in logbooks. You had to because mm-hmm. the you had to prove that you actually did this thing. Yeah. So you had to, you know, mark where you are on given days and how fast you're going, that sort of thing. He also was given a camera by a press agent named Rodley Hallworth um, so that he could sort of document on video his days passing, that sort of thing. The documentary reads passages from his logbooks and shows a few of his videos and like along with those of other racers, his videos often show him like really full of confidence. He feels like at peace out there on the water. He has a lot of very poetic things to say um, about being out there. Yes, (laughs) at first. But his logbooks are almost immediately different. Uh, They tell about parts of the ship filling with water, um, needing to be bailed by hand every day. Uh, the screws falling out of the self-steering gear. Oh. There's like one where he's like, four more screws fell out today. There's only three left. I don't really know what I'm going to do there. <laughs> like, it's horrible. Quote in, from the logbook, the bloody boat is falling to pieces. It's not good. So, <laughs> just like, why, <laughs> why build a boat when you could build? Buy one that's already built. He wanted one that was to his exact specifications because he's an inventor. and That he, is just silly. He thought he could make the fastest boat. Yeah, it's, nope. it's real silly. But anyway, this is, this is where he is. A series of decisions have led him to this moment. He is in the middle of the Atlantic. He is going to be heading into the South Atlantic, the most dangerous part of the journey, rounding around Africa. A lot has already happened to the racers that have done this already, that set out before him. Five people drop out of the race just during that part. One of them, the stress gave him a stomach ulcer and he had to quit. One of them had problems with the boat. Like, five people drop out, it leaves four. That's the four people I've been talking about. Bernard, Nigel, Robin, and Don. They're left. This is a, this is a quote about the South Atlantic. Imagine your boat is the size of a small truck and coming towards you is a 12-story building. That is the size of the waves down there. We fucking talked about this. We yeah. don't like that shit uh-huh. at all. Uh-huh. We don't like that shit. Nope. And like these boats are, you know, they're built to go over those waves. Yeah. A lot of these I people. I mean, when built correctly, yes. Yes. When built correctly, yes. Don knows his boat isn't built correctly for uh-huh. He he can't make it on the regular ocean. Already he's having yeah. so many problems. This means death. If he goes, he will die. That is 100% true. And yep. it's in his logbooks that he is aware. But if he turns around, it's early enough in the race that if he comes back, he destroys his family financially. See, I just like turn around, hang out. In the middle of the ocean and just like go in a circle for about a month and then turn around and start coming back. Oh, um, let's talk about that. Okay. Uh-oh. So this is one an- a man who was interviewed from sort of the press at the time. This man had uh, like a lot of love in his heart for Don. You could tell like he was really, he had read all of Don's logs. 
he was really trying to get in his mindset. Yeah. So he said, if he came back, he was ruined. If he went forward, he was dead. Was there a third option? Turns out there was. Go live in Africa and never come home. <laughs> never return, yeah. <laughs> so word started coming in back home one day. They had been hearing about all the problems. And then one day, Don telegrams that he has hit a fantastic stride. First, he sailed 174 miles in a day, which is huge. And then he sailed 243 miles in a day, which is a sailing speed record. And it just kept happening. He was setting speed records day after day after day. That many miles a day, like, will catch him up to the people ahead of him. Will beat Motissier. If he can hold on, like, and keep that going, he will win. And, like, to his family and the press and to the people back home in his hometown, they started to feel like, oh, my God, Don could win. But here's the thing. And Emily is making a face because she feels it happening. I feel like you're lying to me. Okay. So let's see. Let's see. Just going real fast is not a third option because he still, he would still be heading. The boat is still falling apart. Yes. He would still be heading into a a thing that would crush his boat under these waves. Like Mm -hmm. he would still die. Going real fast is not the option. The option is to lie. So Don has decided he's going to tell the media that he is rounding the bend south of South Africa. He is catching up to Tetley and Motissier. Uh, Knox Johnson is way, way out ahead. Uh, not necessarily in timing, just he mm-hmm. started earliest. In reality, Don had stopped in the mid-Atlantic a few hundred miles off the coast of Brazil. It may have started as a game based on his logbooks and what the, those interviewed who knew Don had said, it might have started as a game. Something that he, he was doing to bide his time as he decided what to do. He would stop and be like, well, I can't tell them I haven't moved. So he will tell them he keeps, he's kept going, but he's just sitting there trying to decide whether he should go back or whether he should keep going. But days pass. Day after day after day, the gap between where Don is supposed to be in the race and where he is is huge. Yeah, I was going to like lying came to mind, but also eventually that will catch up with him. Yes. And the farther away he is from where he's supposed to be, the more mountainous a problem this becomes. There's no way after a point that you could ever catch up to what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Like he is fucked. Yeah. So he starts sending fewer and fewer telegrams. And the ones he did send became so hard to decipher that the news just wouldn't put out a story because they'd be like, I don't know what this means. In one of them, he admits to being off the coast of Brazil, but they believe that he is supposed to be past Africa. So they're like, we don't even know what he means by this. Mm-hmm. We're, not, we're just not going to say anything. Can put it in the dumpster. Yeah, exactly. Eventually, Don tells the press that he is having trouble with his radio transmitter and he will not be getting them any more messages for a while. And he goes radio silent for months <laughs> like four fucking months which is terrifying to his family by the way yeah where did he go where is he is he dead what's happening horrible so don's sitting there in the middle of the ocean having gotten himself into quite a pickle yeah probably having a nervous breakdown or five dude yeah um don's logs at this point are full of like 
melancholy musings. He's kind of a poetic writer. It's kind of lovely. But obviously his predicament, the lying, and also just being out at sea utterly alone with your problems. You can't escape them. They're there all the time. Yeah. There is no walking away. There is no starting like a new day like without the problem. Like, it's always there and you are alone with it. And there's nothing around you but ocean for day after day after day after day. And it is clearly getting to him in his logs and even in his videos. He is not doing great. Some people are built for this sort of thing. Like they like being alone. Bernard Martissier, Martissier is one of them. He was absolutely made to do this. <laughs> hundred percent he says in his logs that being alone is the only way you can find out who you truly are being out there on the water is like the most peaceful he's ever felt so he's killing it still he's still out there all right isolation takes its toll on everyone eventually but yep. like some people are just more adjusted to it some people can handle it a lot better than others yeah they don't need they're extreme introverts yes yeah for sure Don is not like that. <laughs> Don is like a very, again, confident people person. Like, mm -hmm. And when you see and talk to no one all the time, like the loneliness and the guilt and the fear and the lying is all just a lot. But Don did have a plan. He is hanging out where he is for a reason. So the other racers were already headed around Australia after a couple more months. And in a matter of a few more months, they would be rounding the horn, the southern tip of South America, and headed back up through the Atlantic toward England. They would pass Don, and he would turn around and act like he had been with them the whole time. And he would head into England. He was not at this point trying to win. I want to make sure, like, I have a lot of sympathy for him because it feels like he stumbled in with a series of bad decisions into this really horrible snowball of lying. He is not trying to win and say that he did this. He wants to skirt in in fourth yeah, and have nobody look at his logs and nobody give a shit. He just wants to not financially devastate his family and he wants to go home. So he is just waiting for them. It's a huge ocean. They're not going to see him sitting there necessarily, but Maybe. he will know, right. He will know when he gets back on radio with people where they are and when he can turn around and join them. And this, at this point, he has also been keeping two separate logbooks: one of his real journey sitting there and one of them of him circumnavigating the globe. So he spends hours a day maintaining a fake log and trying to, chart out where he would be each day so that if they look at it, it will seem legit. But he does not want a huge amount of scrutiny on it. That's why he doesn't want to come in first. <laughs> so, a couple months into waiting, one of the floats on the side of his boat split. Oh! That's good. So the boat's fucked if he doesn't make land and fix it. But if he makes land, and the Coast Guard sees him... He's done. He's done. And he's humiliated. Yeah. But he does it. He doesn't really have a lot of choice. And I mean. his logs from this time are of a person who, as was quoted in the documentary by the press man who has a lot of sympathy for him, he was like a man halfway in and halfway out of the real world. Like, he wasn't really all there. Mm -hmm. He's so committed to this lie and 
just the day-to-day needs of things and, and being so alone, <laughs> like that he's not probably thinking super clearly anyway. So he does make landfall um, at an outpost in Rio Salado for supplies and to fix his ship and food. They actually interview the man who was running the outpost. I'm like, how the fuck did you find this guy? This is 2006. Listen, they're resourceful. They really are. This was a great documentary, by the way. I recommend people watch the shit out of this. Not too dramatic, but beautifully done. <laughs> anyway, they, this guy was like, we couldn't understand him, but he just, he seemed really nervous. And he needed his boat fixed. He got that fixed. By the time he was leaving, he was in much higher spirits. He could go back to doing He saw the thing. people. Yes, that's the other thing. He saw people for the first time in months and was like, oh my God. Even if hey, they what's up? Yeah, they don't speak his language, but you're still looking at somebody in the eye. Mm-hmm. And, and you're like, on fucking solid land. Yes, that must have been a nice little reprieve. They interview his wife about this part uh, because, you know, later she finds out that he did make landfall and uh, he, did, he didn't contact them. Yeah. He'd been radio silent for months. They thought something terrible might have happened to him, and he chose not to contact them because it would have given him away. But also, yeah. like, she is quoted as saying, like, that was quite a shattering blow to know that he didn't contact us. So he fixes his boat, and he heads out in much higher spirits. There's a drunken video of him at this point where he puts on, like, a real super Cockney accent. And he's like, I'm as drunk as a circumnavigator could be. Like, he's singing. It's ridiculous. He, um, he's, uh, he's, he's different now, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> he's a different guy at this point. You've changed. You are a stranger. Yeah. <laughs> I'm meeting you in the ocean. <laughs> so... He was closing in on the moment when his fake position would catch up with his real position as he had been reporting. (laughs) Um, So he had to continue to make accurate fake logs of his journey and decide when to break radio silence. Like he would come out and be like, hey, I fixed my stuff. By the way, I'm here now. And it would be correct because he would be where he said he should be, but he's just been there the whole time as opposed to coming up on it it's pretty stupid but he's got a plan you know in his mind he's he's counting down the days when by his fake log he should make it to where he actually is one day don decides to send a telegram and he says that he is well he's healthy he's just he's turned for home he's headed back he is behind the other three racers um, and then this is when shit got weird huh? for, I was like, okay, okay. This almost might work out. I want to say I watched this documentary without knowing if this man would live. I, it was a huge, um, gamble, honestly, but I was like so invested in it after a while that I was like, fuck it. I'm, I'm watching this. So, uh, Knox Johnson, Bernard Mutissier and Nigel Tetley are all ahead of him eventually. They, they, they've done the thing. They've actually gone yeah, around the globe. they actually did the thing. Yes, they actually did it. They are headed up through the Atlantic toward home. Bernard, it was believed, was in second based on his timing. Um, so everyone assumed. Because here's the thing. I mentioned that Bernard Mutissier was made for this. 
And in his logs, as he headed into the Atlantic, he had started to say, I don't actually know if I want to go home. Uh-oh. I actually, I don't, I don't know who I'll be back there. Uh-oh. And so one day they get a message from Bernard that he has dropped out of the race and he turned back south and he is going to head around the world again. He told his wife, I will see you sometime. Okay. <laughs> yeah. They interview his wife too. She t- only speaks French, but she's just like, I know him. I knew him well enough to know that that was going to happen. Like, I wasn't even that surprised. I was like, yeah, yeah, of course you fucking are. Yeah. Oh, you gave him an opportunity to not only leave home, but go literally anywhere he wants in the world yes. that's connected to an ocean. He feels so fucking free and okay. he doesn't want to give that up. And she was just sort of like, okay. I guess she said, like, my youngest daughter cried for three days and three nights. And she said, Mom, what are we going to do? And she said, we're going to go on with our lives. <laughs> like, he left her, event, like, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> like, he could have been out on the ocean forever. I, I've got an update on him. But we've his lost... His life, my- his love, and his lady. Is the fucking sea. Yes. Hundo. Mm-hmm. Clink. Clink to that. <laughs> But I like, I respect his wife for being like, sure, dude, I knew that was going to fucking happen. I'm not an idiot. Fuck you. Goodbye. Mm-hmm. I'm going to move the fuck on. So Bernard's gone. That leaves Don Tetley and Knox Johnson. Oh, Robin Knox Johnson was the first man to arrive back. But at like 92 miles average a day, that did not make him the fastest one still in the race. So it is between Tetley and Don. Oh, God. For who is going to win. And Don is sending messages like, there's no way I'm catching Tetley. Because, again, he doesn't want to win. He's like, nope. Uh, he will doctor his logbooks to be behind Tetley on purpose. He doesn't want to win. <laughs> so he keeps saying, like, yep, no, it's over. I mean, look, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to be back soon, but Tetley's going to win. And then, one day, they get word that Tetley's boat has sunk. It just sunk out of fucking nowhere. I don't even know what happened. They didn't talk about what happened to him. He was rescued. He was like airlifted out of there and he made it back and he was alive, but his boat sunk. And there goes Don's last chance of sliding into port with no notoriety and just nobody noticing him and getting to slink away back to his family and not having to deal with possibly being hugely humiliated on a national and international level. So, this Don knows now that this means that when he comes back, he will be declared the winner, and it means a huge amount of scrutiny. It means they, they pour over every inch of his logbooks. They watch his videos. It means that he will be caught because he also will have to do interviews and like be in parades and like look people in the eye and tell them that he did this over and over and over for the rest of his life. So Don, already not in great spirits, he is stressed and alone and depressed and scared and isolated And actually, at this point, Don's radio transmitter actually does fail. (laughs) For real. And he tried for a few days after Tetley's boat was found sunk. 
um, to get a message through to his wife. He tried to talk to her for days and days on end, and it wouldn't work. And he became really obsessed with fixing it. And he couldn't fix it. And his wife was really distraught in the video because she was like, he was just trying to talk to somebody who would be nice to him and who wouldn't judge him for how he was feeling. Yeah. And he couldn't talk to couldn't her. He couldn't get through to anyone. A hundred thousand people were expected to meet him at the dock. <laughs> there was fanfare. The whole country was watching. On June 24th, 1969 now, Don turns away from England and lets his boat go adrift. He wrote, he starts to write a missive in his logbook, what he called My Philosophy, in which, and I mean, the stuff they've been quoting from him has gotten more and more bleak, but also obscure and mm. strange. And he talks a lot about God. And in this one, he is like, railing against the idea of God and humanity and the idea of good and evil and whether they actually exist. One of the quotes is, I have become a second generation cosmic being. I am conceived in the womb of nature of my mind and in the womb of the universe. This is the shit he is talking about now. Okay. In Don's mind, he has almost ceased to be human. <laughs> he has some psychological connection to the universe now. So that's where Don is. All right. <laughs> it's not great. Has he been drinking the seawater? Who knows? <laughs> Honestly, don't know. Because um, if it doesn't mention it in his logs, we have no idea. Uh, he has a lot of quotes like that, where he's like, look, lying and deceit in this sort of way, like deception is the greatest sin you can commit. Oh, boy. And it would be horrible for a human to do it, but it's even worse for a cosmic being. It's like, he is really, really far gone. <laughs> like, holy shit, it's bad. It's really hard to listen to, honestly. So, he, it seems, has sort of lost sight of what's actually happening, of his family, of who he is as a person. And one of the last things he writes is... It is finished. It is finished. It is the mercy. So on July 16th, 1969, Don's boat is found 700 miles from land, and he is not in it. He has disappeared, and for a while the world was completely baffled until they brought Don's boat back to England and found his logbooks, both of them the fake one and the real one and his crazy missives. So Rodney Hallworth, the press agent was like maybe the second person to read these. He says in an old interview that they play that he was like, well, we, we all agreed we were never going to tell anyone what happened in the last few hours of Don's life. But in reality, he sold those books to a local newspaper, like a huge fucking dick. Aww. He is also the first person who told Don's wife, she was aware already that he had been missing, that yeah. they found his boat. Yeah. She didn't know how to tell their kids. Other people had to do it because she was like, I'm not, I can't do that. Mm -hmm. But this man, Rodney Hallworth, is the first man who busted into her house and said, Don didn't sail across the world and he committed suicide. She was like, I will never forget that. How do you, how do you just do that? That's Rodney. How do wow. you just tell somebody that? Wow. Everyone in Don's life felt immensely guilty and angry 
Um, they didn't stop him from going, even when it wasn't looking good. They didn't, they let him make sort of bad decision after bad decision that led to this whole thing. But then they also just, once he was out there, they couldn't help. And yeah. they did, they didn't know. Um, so Robert Knox Johnson was the only man to, to finish the race. Wow. Yeah. Not just the first, but the only one. He got the $5,000. Sure. Because yeah. it's just him. But he donated it to Don's family. Aww. Yeah. That's how I made it. Yeah. For real. Bernard sailed. Bernard Matissier. He sailed halfway across the world again. And he finally ended his voyage in Tahiti. And I don't know what happened to him after that. That's what's... He lived on the beach drinking out of coconuts. Dude, maybe. Maybe he returned home and his wife was like, hey, fuck you. Yeah, <laughs> like, hey, hey, fuck what? No, go go away. Eat our collective family dick. Like, <laughs> I have no idea. Don's body was never found. Nope. His boat lies abandoned on a random Caribbean island. They ended the documentary with a picture of it. Just sitting there, marooned oh. on a beach. Oh. It's weird. And this is a quote from, just to wrap up, from Don's wife. That she's, she was, of course, so sad, but also she believed, like, she felt that her husband always wanted something greater for his life and he wasn't necessarily going to be stopped. Like, yeah. if, if it wasn't this, it might have been something else. He was just the kind of person that really just wanted to be great. Mm-hmm. And even though, so even though this makes her very sad, she said, quote, but people need to dream. I think Don needed that and he had the right to have it. Huh. So, yeah, that fucking wrecked my shop this morning. <laughs> I was like, oh, no. So, yeah, I included that even though, like, he doesn't survive it because he also wasn't killed. He be- yeah. He killed himself, and he still was a survivor. He could have of- finished the race. Yes. And he still was a survivor of a great deal of things yeah. before that moment. And, yeah, just because somebody commits suicide doesn't mean that they aren't also a survivor in yeah. a lot of ways. A lot of different ways. Yeah. So that's done. Hey, wow, two sad ones. How we doing? Living? My glass is broken. Oh, no, it is? I'm sorry. It's empty. Oh, <laughs> you fucking bitch. <laughs> I, thought, I thought you got cracked or something. No, no, it's just busted because there ain't nothing in it. It doesn't automatically reset itself. Look, that was a sad boy. It was. It really was. I'm gonna, yeah. I'm going to keep drinking champagne. Yep. Listeners. But yeah, thank you for joining us. Any final thoughts, Em? I just... <laughs> I thought mine was going to be rough. Yeah. Like I, it I, was. I walked in knowing. And then you just came <laughs> along. The thing is, it's interesting because yours is like, it's upsetting because like the government and people did this to other people. And this is like a, sto- mine was like a story of a man doing this to himself, which is sad in a different set of ways. Let's just go just pet lay on dog. the floor for a little while. Yeah. So you guys... Eat my feelings. When you guys turn this off, just maybe lay on the floor for a bit. Maybe yeah. you're in a cubicle in the office. If you're driving, don't lay on the floor. Uh, yeah. Okay. That one, don't. Wait until you've pulled over. And yeah. And then the just lay on the floor. With the ground. Yeah. Just don't roll down a hill or off a cliff. Right. I mean, try. Uh, if you want to, that's I your prerogative. Mean, okay. Listen. But let's <laughs> not encourage this. But you know what? Regardless, 
Thank you so much for joining us. That was episode 48. It was. Episode 40 fucking eight. We're getting there. Almost episode, episode 50. 50's around the corner. Yes. I've been trying to get started the whole, like, be a little bit like our survivors. I'm not necessarily sure you should be like Don. Um, I don't think he was a bad person, but I don't think you should make the choices Don made. No. <laughs> you I mean... You could be like Roman before he was institutionalized at the VA hospital. Well, and even persevering the way he did yeah. through his life afterwards. You know what? Go eat at a restaurant that you really, really like. Go get some breakfast food. Yeah. Go do that. And uh, don't forget your can of water. Oh, my God.